Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. It is Palm Sunday, and we are celebrating as though it were Easter, and I have a sermon prepared that has nothing to do with Palm Sunday or Easter. So, uh, the, so if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 5, and while you're turning there, uh, let me just say that I grew up Pentecostal, as you're well aware, and uh, my grandpa was the pastor at our church. And we didn't go by the liturgical calendar. We didn't know that there was such thing as a liturgical calendar. We did Christmas and Easter. That was it. And, and we didn't have electionary or anything to go by. And so we, we, my grandpa just preached whatever he felt like preaching on. And so it would be the Sunday before Christmas, and he would preach on hellfire and brimstone. It would be the Sunday before Easter, and uh, we would get something from the minor prophets. And it, that was just how it was. And so let's, this morning, let's be Pentecostal a little bit. Uh, this, is, this is something that's been on my mind for quite some time. In, in the Gospel of John chapter 5, um, we're going to take our reading from John chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 16. And when you get to John 5, uh, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Hebrew called Bethsaida, which has five porticos. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain seasons into the pool and troubled the water. Whoever stepped in first after the troubling of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him and knew that he had been lying there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well, or do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is troubled, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your pallet and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his pallet and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, The man who healed me said to me, Take up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your pallet and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse befall you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed them. And this is why the Jews persecuted Jesus, because he did this on the Sabbath. This ends the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. Oh, come on, you can do better than that. There we go. Uh, You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your word and we are your people. 
And Father, there is something here for us. And so we ask, God, that you would open up your word the same way that someone might crack open an eggshell. Father, let us receive the goods of your word through this message. Father, since, Father, I ask that you would censor my own heart and mind if I say something that is not of you. Father, we want to hear you speak this morning. We love you and we thank you. In, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the earliest memories that I have stored in my mind is me when I'm about three years old. And my grandma is giving me a bath in this blue round tub uh, that used to be the bottom of a plastic 50-gallon barrel. And to give me a bath, she would lay that tub in the middle of the kitchen floor and let me play with my bath toys in it. Well, this blue round tub had some words spray-painted on the side of it in silver, uh, but I was three years old. I couldn't read, so I didn't know what the words were, and I didn't care. I was just having fun in the water playing with my bath toys. As time went by, I noticed that this blue tub was stored in the back room at my grandparents' house, and as I'm, and as I'm getting to the point where I can read a little bit and make out words, I noticed that the words were, that were spray-painted on the side of this tub said, Pool of Bethesda. As I got older, I learned that years before, my grandpa had preached in a revival somewhere, and he preached this text that we read this morning, John 5, and he said he felt like God had told him to cut the bottom of that barrel out, fill it up with water, and invite people to come forward for prayer for healing, and when they came forward, they were to step in this tub. There was a woman who came forward for prayer who had been eaten up with cancer and the doctors didn't give her long to live. She came forward for prayer. She stepped into the tub and my grandpa and some, and some of the pastors who were there laid hands on her and prayed for her. And she said that in that moment she could feel God healing her body. When she went back to, the, to her doctor, she made them run tests on her again and sure enough, she was cancer free. The doctors couldn't believe it. She had cancer all over her body, and now there wasn't a trace of it. Now, I'm I'm not going to pull out that tub and make you stand in water to receive prayer. Uh, But I do simply want to talk to you this morning about the miracle-working Son of God. And I want to tell you that if you have a need, Jesus is here. He meets you where you are. He's ready to save you, heal you, and deliver you. And as we look at this miracle in John's gospel, I want us to focus on the back and forth interaction that Jesus has with this man and see what it is that God wants to say to us in this text. But before we get too deep into the text, I want to create a picture for you of what this situation looks like. Outside the temple, there was a gate where they would bring in the animals that would be sacrificed. It was called the Sheep Gate. You can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 3, how Eliashib the high priest rose up with the other priests to build the Sheep Gate, hang the doors, consecrate it. And, and then Nehemiah took it upon himself uh, uh, to, the, to repair the temple. He restored the Sheep Gate. Now just outside the Sheep Gate was this pool. And it's actually made up of two football-sized, football field-sized bodies of water that had springs underneath them where the water was coming out. These two bodies of water were separated in the middle by a covered porch area right, right in the middle, and then there was a large covered porch area on each side of these bodies of water, and that's what made up the five porches that we read about. And they called this place Bethesda, or Beth, Bethsaida, depending on your translation. The Hebrew word here 
was Bet Hesed. Bet Hesed. So it might be translated as House of Loving Kindness or House of Mercy. The Dead Sea Scrolls describe a pool called the house, described as a pool of the house of flowing or the house of outpouring. Now, if you're using a newer translation like the NIV or the CSB or even the the Good News Bibles like we have in the pews, you'll notice that the last part of verse 3 and all of verse 4 is completely missing. Matter of fact, in the translation that I'm using, the Revised Standard Version, uh, 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 it was not there, uh, but it was in the footnotes of my Bible. So I had to go back and look down at the footnotes to read the whole thing. Um, And it's missing because... The last half of verse 3 and verse 4 was actually added to to this gospel later in one of the later manuscripts to help people understand the context of the passage. Now, since the last part of verse 3 and 4 is missing in the original manuscripts, so John didn't actually write it himself, since the last part of verse 3 and 4 is missing, there's debates about whether or not an angel would actually come down and stir up the waters or if this was just some kind of Jewish folklore. The common argument from scholars is that an angel coming down to trouble the water doesn't fit the normal pattern of behavior exhibited by angels in the Bible, and the healing that came from the troubling of the waters doesn't fit the normal pattern of supernatural activity in the Bible. Now let me offer you my opinion as to what I would say to these scholars. To them, I would say, it doesn't matter what you consider to be normal. The Bible isn't interested with fitting the criteria of what we would consider to be normal. Hello? (laughs) After all, in the book of Acts, you've got people being healed by simply being under Peter's shadow and as he walks by. You've got God working miracles at the hands of Paul so much that even handkerchiefs that Paul had handled were being distributed to the sick and they were being healed just by touching the handkerchiefs. So when you consider all of that stuff, when you consider that all of that stuff doesn't seem normal, sure, why not have an angel come down and stir up the waters? God doesn't care about what you consider normal patterns of supernatural activity. It's supernatural. What do you not understand about the super, right? What's so hard to understand about the super in supernatural? One other thing I want us to understand is that this place, these five porches, is filled up to the brim with the sick and the infirm. This is more packed out than a hospital during the height of COVID. It's important for you to picture that in your mind. How how many sick and disabled people there are waiting for these waters to be stirred up so that they can get in and be healed. Out of all of them, there's this one guy One guy that's singled out by Jesus. There's three parts to this interaction. There's a question, there's a command, and there's a warning. Let's look first at the question, verses verses 6 and 7. When Jesus saw him and knew that he had been lying there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Seems like an obvious question, right? Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is troubled, and while I am going, another steps down before me. You know, it drives me up the wall whenever I ask a question and don't get an answer. Especially if it's a yes or no question. Jesus Jesus asks this question, Do you want to be made healed? Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? It's a yes or no question. 
And this guy says, well, I just don't have, you know, he starts making excuses. He says, I don't have anyone to put me in the pool. Of course he wants to be healed. I would want to be healed. You know, and whenever you ask a question and you don't get a direct answer, you know, who, who is it that does that? Spouses don't look at your spouses. Car dealers are the absolute worst about this. You go to a dealership, you ask them if they have a certain kind of vehicle, and if they don't have it, instead of directly saying, no, we don't have that, they will immediately try to sell you on something you don't need. You know, it's not just salesmen. Sometimes you'll ask somebody a direct question, and all you want is a direct answer, and they will just tell you everything in the world except the answer to the question that you asked. What happens to Jesus is he asks this lame man straightforwardly, do you want to be made well? And instead of a yes or no answer, this lame man launches into his predicament. Well, I've got no one who will put me in the pool when the water is stirred up while I'm coming another steps down before me. I mean, yes or no, do you want to be made well? I'm so glad that I'm not Jesus because I probably would have said, dude, do you want this or not? Now, in his defense... In his defense, he didn't know who Jesus was. He probably thought Jesus was some guy trying to make a conversation. He might have thought Jesus' question was a little insulting because he had not been able to walk for 38 years, and there's no telling how often this guy tried to get into the pool. And here comes this person who comes along and asks, do you want to be made well? Well, this guy probably thought Jesus meant something like, well, come on, don't you want it bad enough? Notice something about his answer in verse 7. His answer is solely focused on his own ability or lack thereof. How many times in our lives do we focus on our own inability when we're confronted with a challenge or a conflict? This man had to live with his disability for 38 years. His entire life has been defined by his lack of mobility. It was defined by his lack of being able to grab the opportunity that's right in front of him. Emotionally, he feels rejected and beaten because for 38 years, it seems like everyone else has gotten their healing. Everyone else has gotten what they need. In his mind, he might believe that God has been good to everyone else but him. What he seems to be forgetting is that he's not alone. There are other people there at the pool of Bethesda who are in his situation as well. They're sick, they're infirm, they're lame, they're deaf, they're blind. They need something too. But this man has focused so much on his own limitations that he has closed himself off to the fact that there are people around him who are also suffering and they want the same thing that he does. Now I know we come to church and tell everybody what a good week we had and how we're all okay and that we don't want to tell anybody what the doctor said. We don't want to tell anybody what our kids went, went and got themselves into. We don't want to talk about our deepest fears, our deepest felt needs, because we've got to stay strong, right? We've got to keep it together. We're good little boys and girls who serve Jesus on Sunday and go out and do all of these nice things throughout the week. We can't let anybody know that we are broken. We can't let anybody know that we are fundamentally frayed at the bits. We want everybody to think we've got it all together, and the truth is we don't. We think we've got to carry that weight. We think we've got to carry that weight and be strong. But the fact of the matter is that God never intended for you to walk alone. Galatians 6.2, Paul writes and he says, Bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus says, come to me, 
all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, for you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen, you are not made to carry your burdens alone. Carrying your burdens alone is dark, unbearable, and incredibly lonely. But instead, God has designed you to live in community with other believers who can carry your burdens with you and you can carry their burdens as well. And according to what we just read, According to what we just read in what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 together you can lay your burdens at the feet of Jesus. And that's why Peter says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him for He cares for you. Listen, the God of all creation cares for you personally. There are around 200 billion galaxies that we can see, and there are 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone. And on top of that, if the scientists are right, then the universe in which we live is constantly expanding. When you think about how big our universe is, you really begin to see how small you are. And you begin to think, how could God care for me? But remember this, no matter how big, beautiful, or vast those stars or galaxies are, none of them bear His image like you do. God has placed His mark of majesty upon your very being. I'll say that again. God has placed His mark of majesty upon your very being. In Genesis 1.28, when God said, let us make man in our image, those weren't just pretty words that meant something. Those weren't just pretty words. It meant something real. It meant something tangible. Us bearing the image of God means that God has placed His signature on us in much the same way that an artist might sign the bottom of his painting. Everyone around you may define you by your inabilities. Everyone around you may define you by your circumstances. They may define you by your status or what you do not have. But God defines you by His own image in which you are made. That's why many times when Jesus would heal someone, people wouldn't even recognize them anymore. They had been defined as that blind beggar that sat by the road, that lame man at the pool of Bethesda, that mute guy. When you look at John chapter 9 where Jesus heals a blind man, which by the way also happened on the Sabbath, people are debating in John 8 and 9 whether or not this is even the same man. He had been defined by his disability for so long that when he no longer had his disability, he was virtually unrecognizable to people who passed by him every day. I think sometimes, I think sometimes we forget how important it is to value one another as image bearers of God. And I'm stomping on my own toes when I say stuff like that, by the way. Every single person who irritates you is made in the image of God. That cashier that is rude to you is made in the image of God. Those teenagers who work at McDonald's that get your order wrong every time you go in there are made in the image of God. That politician you don't like, that congressman you can't stand, that president you believe may have stolen the election is made in the image of God. Those pastors and elders within our denomination that want to distort the scriptures and go back on their vows to uphold the confession of faith are made in the image of God. I could stop and give an altar call right there and I'd be the first one to respond. Listen, the answer that this lame man gives to Jesus in John 5, 7, it's an honest answer. It's true that he has no one to help him into the water. 
But his answer is also focused on himself and doesn't directly answer Jesus' question of whether or not he wants to be made well. And that's what brings us to the command. That's what brings us to the command. See, it's interesting to me. It's interesting to me that whenever you get right down to brass tacks, Jesus asked this question, do you want to be made well? And the, the guy doesn't give a direct answer. So what does Jesus do? He doesn't get impatient and leave the guy alone. He doesn't move on to the next sick guy. He just takes over the situation. He just takes over the situation and tells the guy to rise up and walk. See, that's interesting to me. That's interesting to me because so many times we get impatient with people. Instead of just directly taking initiative, whenever people have a problem, whenever people are confused, whenever people are tore apart, um, sometimes you just have to take initiative for them. And that's what Jesus does here. There are people who are, who are paralyzed by their grief. They're paralyzed by their sickness. They're paralyzed by their inability They don't know what to do. They've been stuck in the same rut and in the same situation for years. And sometimes you've just got to take the initiative and show them that there is a better way. Show them that they can be made well. Show them that their life has meaning outside of the rut that they've been stuck in. That wasn't even in my notes. Y'all got that one for free. Um, But look at the command in verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your pallet and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his pallet and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. There's something different about this miracle. Jesus doesn't touch the man. Jesus doesn't pray for him. Jesus doesn't spit on the ground, make mud, and apply it somewhere on on him like he does for the blind man in John 9. In Mark 8, 22 through 26, where Jesus heals another blind man, which also happened in Bethesda, by the way, Jesus spit directly into the man's eye, and when he opened his eyes, he said he could see men as trees walking. And then Jesus touches his eyes again, and he can completely see. Jesus doesn't do any of that here. Now, why do you suppose that is? Why, why doesn't Jesus even touch the man? Jesus doesn't do any of that here. He simply speaks to the man. He tells him to rise, take up his bed, and walk. Now keep in mind, this man doesn't even know who Jesus is. We know that because the Pharisees are going to get mad over him uh, walking around with his bed on the Sabbath instead of celebrating the fact that he's even walking around at all. And they're going to ask him, well, who told you it was okay to do this? Who told you it was okay to carry your bed on the Sabbath? Don't you know we don't work on this day? And the guy says, well, whoever that guy that healed me, he's the one who told me to take up my bed and walk. So this guy has no idea who Jesus is. He doesn't know who Jesus is. So when Jesus tells him to take up his bed and walk, the guy is probably a little bit irritated. He might might have tried to stand up just to show Jesus that he couldn't do it. And then by the time he gets to his feet, he realizes, wait a minute, I couldn't do that before. I couldn't do that for the last 38 years. I, I just have this picture in my mind. This guy has no idea that this is the miracle working son of God. To him, he's just some guy off the street, and he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And I imagine this guy is so irritated. He's like, oh yeah, well, I'll show you. And so he he starts to get up, and he realizes that he can. Listen, have you ever done this? Have you ever just tried to do something to show someone that you couldn't do it? Have you ever just acted out of aggression in that way? I'll give you a good example. Uh, My wife and I were at the grocery store this week, and... um, 
I I always like to try new snacks or things whenever I whenever I whenever we go shopping I might see something I like and she'll say ew that's gross don't get it and most of the time I comply and I don't get it this week I did not um, we came across these um, Eggo waffle flavored uh, pop tarts they looked gross even on the package but I thought I'm intrigued I'm intrigued enough that I'm going to pay five bucks a box for these. And she said, no, put them back. We don't need them. No, 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 I want to try them. So we, we get home. I try them. And she goes, they, they, they look gross. They smell awful. I let her try one. She thought it was awful. And she said, you're not going to like those. I know you're not going to like those. And you know what I did? I finished off the whole box throughout the week. Now, she has no idea what I actually think about them. Because I told her, I'm going to finish this box just to prove a point. So anytime she asked me about them, I said, they were great. They were delicious. I'm going to get another box. <laughs> so as far as you know, I'm completely lying about how I feel about those. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, I, you know, this guy, he probably acted out of passive aggression. He probably stood up just to prove a point. And so he gets to his feet and he realizes that he can walk and he... He takes up his bed. He doesn't need to be at the pool of Bethesda anymore. There's something that I think we need to understand here. When we hear Jesus command us to do something and we believe it to be impossible, we'll just give up. You know, I, I know I'm preaching to myself here. This doesn't apply to y'all. Y'all are good uh, Jesus folk who always obey God on the spot. Um, but whenever we hear Jesus command us to do something and we believe it to be impossible, we'll give up. You know, after all, I've never been able to do that before. How could I possibly do it now? And we won't even try. But what, you, what we don't understand is that if we step out in faith, out of obedience to God, then we can see His Word at work in us and His Word will cause us to do the impossible things. Right? So when we, read it, when we read throughout the scripture, particularly in the Beatitudes, Jesus says things like, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You know, those are just excerpts from the Sermon on the Mount. We hear that and we think, well, I can't do that, so I might as well not even try. Have you ever stopped to think about why Jesus would command you to do the impossible? If you know you can't do it, how much more do you think Jesus knows that you can't do it and He still commands you to do it? It's because He wants to show you how powerful His words are when they're put into action. Do you really think Jesus just stops saving your soul with no intention of changing the rest of your life? Do you really think that once you pray a little sinner's prayer and join the church that God did His ultimate work in your life and that He's done with you? If that's what you think, then you have no idea how salvation works. Let me tell you how it works. It works, that, it works in this way. God has placed His love on you. God drew you to a place of faith and repentance and that's just the beginning. God walks with you every step of the way. Day by day, He convicts you, He shapes you, He changes you, He forms you. And as you walk with Him, He chips away at the old man of sin. That's called sanctification, by the way. And then one day when He returns or calls you home, He will completely glorify you so that you stand faultless before His throne. And if you think this life if you think this life is just you waiting to die after you pray the sinner's prayer, you've got another thing coming. God calls you to do the impossible so that He can show you the power of His Word at work in your life. 
It's the very word of God that caused everything we see to come into being. How much more do you how much more powerful do you think the word of God is whenever God speaks it into your own life and calls you to do the impossible? It's not God just it's not God micromanaging your life and telling you what to do all the time. It God's commands have power because they're his word. It's not like some dictator who issues orders and and the fulfillment of his words depend on whether or not someone else will be obedient. The very commands of God cause you to be obedient. What would your life be like if instead of arguing with God or giving up, you just stepped out in faith and obeyed? Can you imagine the world we would live in if if the early church responded to God the way we respond to God? You know, they have these dramatic conversion experiences and, the, and the, the, they have these dramatic conversion experiences and then they just sit on them and they go about their lives as they normally would before. They don't preach the gospel. They don't make disciples. You know, they don't... Paul doesn't write letters to the church. The church might not even suffer... The, the church might not have even suffered persecution because, eh, obedience to God's just too hard. Eh, you know. We better not preach Jesus. It might get us in trouble with the government. We'll just wait until there's a more tolerant Caesar in power. We wouldn't want to risk going to jail or getting executed. Meh. Listen, if you want to gauge how well you're doing, just think about how much work for the gospel the Apostle Paul would have done if he obeyed like you do. Man, y'all are getting quiet on me this morning. If you want to gauge how well you're doing, just think how much work for the gospel the Apostle Paul would have done if he obeyed like you do. Now that hurts, doesn't it? Yeah, I know. Hurts me too. And I'm the one who had to tell you. Speaking of hurting, listen to what Bible teacher Kay Arthur says about obedience. She says, If you do not plan to live the Christian life totally committed to knowing your God and to walking in obedience to Him, then don't begin. For this is what Christianity is all about. It is a, it is a, Christianity is a change of citizenship. It is a change of governments. It is a change of allegiances. If you have no intention of letting Christ rule your life, then forget Christianity. It's not for you. Listen, you've heard me say it before, and I'll say it again. Jesus paid for all of you. It's only reasonable that he should get what he paid for. You hear that, and you might, you might think, well, that's hard. Listen, forget hard. It's impossible, and that's the point. Jesus wants to show you that the impossible becomes possible through the power of his word. It's not you. It's not your power. It's not your strength. It's all him. Somebody asked C.S. Lewis of living the Christian life was easy or hard. And this is what he said. He said, it is hard as death in the beginning. And then as Jesus' life begins to work within us and transform us, it is relatively easy because he does the work of transforming us. He lives within us and helps us to do impossible things. So far, we've seen the question, you know, do you want to be made well? We've seen the command, rise up, take your bed and walk. Now let's look at this warning. This, is, this warning is something we've got to deal with in verse 14. Look at that. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. This is the man who was healed. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse befall you. Now when you read this verse at face value, it seems that this man had committed some sort of sin that brought this illness upon him because after all, Jesus says, sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you. And he's, he's got to be talking about the possibility of this man's sin bringing a worse illness, right? Maybe. 
You know, Exodus 9, 8 and 9 tells us of an instance where God sent boils on Pharaoh and all the land of Egypt because, his, because of his sin and because of the hardness of his heart. You know, Daniel chapter 4 tells us about King Nebuchadnezzar who was stricken with mental illness because he believed that he had built his kingdom all by himself and he didn't give God glory. And then Daniel 4.33 tells us that he was driven from men and ate grass like an oxen. And of course this is not unlike what we read in the book of Acts, in the New Testament by the way. In Acts chapter 12.20-23 when it says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him in a body. And having persuaded Blastus the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And, and on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, he took his seat upon the throne, and he made a speech to them. And the people shouted, The voice of a God and not of man. And immediately an angel of the Lord smote him, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, as if those examples weren't enough, we have another example that the Apostle Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He describes what happens when people take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. In, verses 20, in, verse, in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 30, he said, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we should not be judged. And so, growing up Pentecostal, we had this misconception about, about this verse, by the way, about the Lord's Supper. Growing up Pentecostal, you know, we believed that if you took the Lord's Supper without asking for forgiveness, making sure every single sin was covered by God, uh, then God was going to strike you dead if you took the Lord's Supper. You know, that's what we thought this passage meant whenever it said, do not take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But here's what really it means. Paul is saying that sickness, and in some cases, death, comes upon people when they come to the table and do not recognize why they're even there. When they don't recognize what God even does for them. See, here's the thing. I know we're Cumberland Presbyterian and we practice open communion, but sometimes, I'm going to be honest, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Because we're not just willing to let because we're just willing to let anybody partake of this meal. No fencing the table, no warning people about what this is, nothing. The way we're just willing to let people possibly drink judgment to themselves is astounding to me. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating for closed communion where only members of this church in good standing should be able to take it. I'm not even advocating for closed communion where, we, where only members of our denomination should be able to take it. But I am convicted that we have to do something to let people know what we're doing and why. Now I promise I'm going to connect this all back to John 5. So hang with me. Uh, but I'll tell you a little story. There was a church in Seattle that had communion on the first Sunday of the month, and there was this man that had cheated on his wife. The pastor and the elders confronted him, and he was unrepentant, and he even began dating this other woman while his wife was in the process of getting divorce papers together. Well, on the Sunday that the church was supposed to have communion, he shows up to church with his girlfriend and intentionally sits where his soon-to-be ex-wife could see him with his arm around her. 
When the ushers invited people up for communion, he and his girlfriend both went up to the table to receive the bread and the wine, and the elders barred him and his girlfriend from receiving the Lord's Supper. And he was furious, and when he asked why he couldn't partake, the pastor looked him dead in the eye in front of God and everybody and said, we're not going to let you partake because we don't want to run the risk of having to drag your corpse out of here for taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Listen, refusing to recognize your sin for, for what it is and the damage that it does to you and to those who love you is a clear sign that you don't understand what Christ has done for you. That, that's what it means to not discern the Lord's body. And so there's four examples. We just ran through four examples from Scripture. Two from the Old Testament, two from the New Testament of how sickness is connected to sin. And so it's easy to read John 5 whenever Jesus says sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you. It's easy to read that and assume that Jesus might be talking about more illness coming upon him because of his sin. However, even though we have examples of how sickness is connected to sin, we also know that sickness is not always the result of sin. We know that sickness and death are not always the result of sin or a lack of faith. For example, in in John chapter 9, just a few chapters later after this, we we have this account of Jesus passing by on the road and he sees a man who was blind from birth and his disciples asked him saying, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Sometimes people are just sick. Sometimes people are just sick. And it's not a result of personal sin and failure to have, you know, it's not a result of personal sin, it's not a result of failure to have faith and believe in God for healing. You have, you have an imperfect body that has been affected by the fallenness of man, and because of Adam's sin sickness and death are a part of life. Brandon G. Bramlett tells us that there is a sense in which all sickness is a result of sin, although not necessarily personal sin. Sickness is a result of original sin. Here's what he says. He says, the question concerns whether or not sickness can be a result of sin. And in a sense, all sickness is a result of sin. That is, all sickness is a result of sin's effect. The reason for the existence of pain, sorrow, ailments, sickness, and even death is because of the effect of sin on the universe. When sin entered the world in Genesis 3, the world became cursed and corrupted. Therefore, anytime you have sickness of any kind, it is because we live in a fallen and corrupted world which is awaiting its renewal. One day the world will be made new and there, will, there won't be any sickness at all. But as long as we live in a world cursed and corrupted by sin, there will be sickness. Most of the sickness we experience is merely a result of sin's curse because our bodies are fallen. Sickness occurs most often not because God is punishing, punishing or disciplining us, but because of the condition and the world in which we live. Now, if we want to bring all of this information back to John 5.14, what do we see? What is this worst thing that Jesus warns this man about? Is it more sickness as a result of sin? I, I don't think so. Now, I realize we just took, took a short tour around the Bible in, in 60 seconds, drawing all the dots between sickness and sin. But I, I don't think Jesus is warning him of the possibility of more physical sickness as a result of sin. I think Jesus is warning him of something much worse. Spiritual sickness. 
Now, I feel like I can gather that from the immediate context of what happens right after in verses 15 and 16. It says, The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now, what do these verses have to do with spiritual sickness? It's because the Pharisees recognized that a miracle was performed. They recognized that Jesus changed a man's life for the better, and all they could focus on was the fact that it occurred on the Sabbath. They refused to honor Jesus as the Son of God, and because that, they were worse off than someone who had been lame for 38 years of his life. They were worse off than the blind man in John 9. They were worse off than the woman who Jesus healed in the temple on the Sabbath who had been, who had been crippled and hunched over for 18 years. Now pay attention to the last part of this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees in verses 17 through 23. I'm going to close after this. By the way, a preacher gets five closings. There's my first one. Um, look Look at John 5, 17 through 23. But Jesus answered them, My father is working still and I am working. This is why the Jews sought to sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also called God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever he does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing in greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The beginning of verse 23, where it says that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father, that's the crux of the matter. That's the main issue. Do you honor the Son? A couple of weeks ago we looked at Psalm 2. And do you remember what Psalm, do you remember what the very last verse in Psalm 2 says? Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. So let's review what we've looked at this morning, but let's do it in reverse so we really see what we're dealing with. We, we looked at Jesus' warning. The, the warning is that the worst thing that can happen to you is for your sin to make you blind to the work that God's Son has done for you. The worst thing that can happen is, is for your sin to cause you to ignore who Jesus is for you. Jesus' command was that He told the lame man to rise up and walk, and, and the question For us, is will we respond to the Word of God in our lives? Will we rise up and follow Him? Will we see the Word of God at work in our own lives? And then the question that Jesus asked at the beginning was, do you want to be made well? Listen, life is offered in the miracle-working Son of God, and all of the life that He offers can be yours by faith. There's two familiar but pertinent scriptures that come to mind. You know, we all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then I'm sure we know Romans 10.13 as well, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now I get it. I get it. Most, most, if not all of us here, have been saved for years. But listen, we've got to keep coming back to the message that gives us hope and life because you're not going to find it anywhere else. 
The world isn't going to offer you grace. The world isn't going to offer you unconditional love. The world sure isn't going to give you life and life more abundantly. But Jesus will. The world is going to give you nothing but chaos, fear, and destruction. But Jesus offers a better way of living. He offers you a better hope. He offers you a better way of looking at the world. You can have life because of Jesus. All you have to do is answer this simple question. Do you want to be made well? If you would, stand and we'll pray. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.